Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Welcome back to The Whole View, episode 454. This week, we're going to be talking about the vaccines that we didn't cover in our four-part series on the mRNA vaccines. I personally have already previewed the show notes and can tell you there's a lot of knowledge bombs (laughs) and a lot of science coming. Um, I just, I feel like I want to say what we've stated in the other shows in case you're coming to this one for the first time looking for information specific to the Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca um, coronavirus COVID-19 vaccines, um, we approach this show always with facts and data. Um, the truth doesn't have an opinion. Fact doesn't have an opinion. Science doesn't have an opinion. We're not here to debate or to even tell you what you should or should not do. We are not imparting any personal opinion into these shows. We are here to provide a summary of information that Sarah has spent Who knows how many hours? Honestly, I'm a little worried about how geeked out she is on this topic (laughs) (laughs) Um, and distilled it for us in a way that pulls it all together and helps us make our own informed decisions. So I just want to remind you that we are not medical professionals. We are not giving you medical advice. We are sharing information that is available both from, you know, public information as well as Sarah has access as a PhD scientist to information and clinical trials and different kinds of things that um, we're going to talk about. But we we believe that when you are informed with the information and you are empowered to make the best decision for you, that that is the best that we could possibly provide you. So, <laughs> uh, for sure. And so also. Um, you know, even though we're talking about uh, a different class of vaccines, it's a different platform, um, and we're going to explain you know, how it's different and where it's sort of similar to the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna mRNA vaccines against um, the novel coronavirus. I do kind of want to make sure that our listeners are aware that I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of assume the the base knowledge that of what we covered in that four-part series. So in episode 440, if you haven't listened to it, we looked at the history of vaccines, we examined vaccine-induced injury, and then we sort of talked about the scientific advances that led to mRNA vaccine technology. In episode 441, we really dove deep into the safety and efficacy data for both the Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna COVID-19 vaccines. And then episodes 443 and 444, uh, which we had intended on all being one episode, but it was so long, audio files broke and it ended up being divided into two, was really just a, a huge collection of Uh, frequently asked questions um, and busting a lot of the myths that have been sort of pervasive on the internet about the mRNA vaccines. So in this show, we're going to to kind of try to compress all of of that type of of science um, into one show just about the what are called adenovirus vector vaccines or DNA vaccines, which are both the, it's actually J and J and J, uh, Stacy, I was like, oh, you know, it's there's all of these vaccines are really interesting, sort of like academic 
and then pharmaceutical company partnerships generally. So it's Johnson and Johnson and Janssen, and then AstraZeneca and uh, Oxford University are the are the two vaccines. And so we we're going to shorten them to J and J and AstraZeneca. But I think it's sort of important to acknowledge, uh, just like Pfizer and BioNTech were were uh, two you know two different companies that that you know worked together and collaborated to create one vaccine. Um, these are also vaccines that arise out of out of partnerships and and huge collaborations. I love the idea of teamwork. Um, so that's good information, but I know you have a lot more like <laughs> actual scientific information. All of, it, all of it. Yes. So let's go ahead and jump in. And we are just going to give you a heads up. It's going to be dense. And we do have complete show notes on our websites. So you can go to thepaleomom.com, realeverything.com, and see all of the references and detailed show notes on all of the shows that we have. But if you're looking for, you know, anything that Sarah references for more information, or, you know, if you're listening to it in the car and you're like, wait, what, what did she say? You can come back and get the details. So the Johnson and Johnson and Janssen and AstraZeneca and University of Oxford vaccines are um, both uh, what are called DNA vaccines. And so the concept is actually pretty similar to the mRNA vaccines. Um, the idea is to deliver the genetic instructions for making just the coronavirus spike protein so that we trick ourselves into making this one very small part of the novel coronavirus, so not the whole virus, so we're not creating virus, you're not contagious. It is just the part of the virus that actually um, is how the virus enters our cells. So that spike protein is what binds with receptors in our cells and is also part of the machinery of how the virus gets into our cells. And so by by tricking our cells to make just the spike protein, we can show that to our immune systems and our immune systems go, well, you're not supposed to be here. And they learn to basically recognize that spike protein. They create uh, antibodies that can bind and neutralize that spike protein or bind and tag it for the immune system. And they also create what's called cellular memory, where we have um, T cells that uh, can recognize that foreign protein so that then if we're ever exposed to the novel coronavirus, our immune systems already know what it is and can basically uh, kill it before it can replicate enough to make us sick. So that that is the whole concept behind vaccines. And um, and the, what's cool about mRNA and DNA vaccines is um, they're basically what a sort of type of vaccine called subunit, subunit vaccines. We're just we're just delivering a small piece of the pathogen. Um, but they're also the, this very new vaccine technology based on decades and decades of research where we get our cells to make the protein. So DNA is basically just, it's like the map for making all proteins. If our cells was, were just going to make a protein out of a DNA map, it would first transcribe it into mRNA and then translate it into protein. Those are done in two different areas of the cell. And so the, the difference with the DNA vaccines is it just requires now two big steps in order to make the protein instead of the mRNA vaccines that only required one step. In terms of the, the instructions they deliver, they're nearly identical to the mRNA vaccines. So it's the spike protein. Um, the difference was both the mRNA vaccines, um, they changed a couple of amino acids. They added a couple of mutations to stabilize 
the protein structure into what's called its post-fusion conformation, which basically is like after it interacts with our um, our ACE2 receptors, that that structure. Um, and so the both of the um, DNA vaccines that we're talking about today don't have those mutations. So it's considered like what would be called wild type, but it's basically creating the spike protein without being stabilized into one particular confirmation. Um, but other than that, you know, the instructions are, are pretty much identical. It's just DNA versus mRNA. So adenoviruses are how that DNA is delivered into our cell nuclei. Um, they've been studied for as sort of like DNA delivery vectors for about 50 years. I actually used adenoviruses for gene therapy research in my PhD and have actually a patent uh, that came out of my PhD research using adenovirus vectors. So it's something I'm, I'm super, um, so super familiar with. And the reason why there's such great DNA delivery um, vectors is that um, adenoviruses themselves are generally um, a pretty harmless class of viruses. Um, there are a couple that can cause more severe illness, but most of the 88-ish different types cause common colds down to about like nothing. So there's a bunch that, you know, we can get infected with and we'll, we would never know. Um, and then other ones that might cause things like bronchitis, gastroenteritis, um, conjunctivitis. Um, but generally, you know, they cause mild illnesses. They're really easy to, um, they're basically altered so that they can't replicate when they're used for, for these types of, um, these types of systems, right? So we're, we want to deliver DNA, but we don't want that DNA to be able to replicate itself. So the adenoviruses can't replicate themselves. And adenoviruses are incapable of uh, causing mutations in our DNA. So um, there are some types of viruses that can insert their DNA into our genomes. Adenoviruses cannot. So they do not have the enzymatic machinery that would be necessary to integrate their DNA into ours. So there's zero risk of what's called insertional mutagenesis, which would potentially like increase lifelong risk of cancer. So adenoviruses cannot do that. So their DNA goes inside our nuclear envelope, but does not combine with our DNA. And so because of that, um, in, they're actually fantastic for use for vaccines. The early gene therapy research um, with adenoviruses ended up being really limited because um, they're, they're, there's immunological memory against adenoviruses. So if you've had a cold before with that type of virus, then once that virus is in your body, your immune system goes, aha, I know you and can actually kill all the virus before the virus gets to deliver enough DNA um, to make enough protein to make a difference. That's really important in gene therapy where you want to get a lot of different cells to make the protein. So for example, in cystic fibrosis, this has been um, studied for, gosh, like 30 years now. Um, how, do you, how do you fix this one protein in the lungs um, and some other tissues in the body like the liver that's not working properly. Um, so we want to get all of the lung cells to make the proper version of this protein. If our immune system's attacking a large amount of the adenovirus, that's not good for gene therapy. But it turns out it's actually really handy for vaccines. And so in the last uh, 20 years or so, the research with adenoviruses to deliver DNA has really switched from being focused on gene therapy research to focused on vaccines 
because if the virus itself is kind of activating the immune system and then you present it with this foreign protein, right, that's the coronavirus spike protein, then you've got exactly the type of a specific immune response, a, a type of immune response that you would get to a viral infection, but without the viral infection. So you're getting activation of all of the specific immune subsets and cytokines that you need for immunological memory against a virus. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So as I mentioned, there's a lot of different types of this virus and what um, all of the um, adenovirus-based coronavirus vaccines have done is choose adenovirus types um, called serotypes that are um, less likely to be circulating in the population. So you're less, your immune system's less likely to have seen it before. So it gives um, that virus a bit more time to deliver its DNA so that when we do go, haha, foreign virus, and then wow, this spike protein, we're gonna, we're gonna super attack that with the immune system. Um, in that case, you've delivered enough DNA to make enough protein to deliver enough antigen to the immune system to develop immunological memory. So the type of virus that's being used, I actually, I, I did research using adenovirus type five, which actually is the same as the as China's um, CanSino coronavirus vaccine, and one of the two doses of the Russian Sputnik V um, vaccine uses adenovirus type 5. The other dose of the Russian Sputnik um, vaccine uses adenovirus 26, um, which is what the Johnson Johnson and Janssen vaccine is using. Um, and the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine is actually using a chimpanzee adenovirus that causes a cold in chimps um, and in humans causes a, an asymptomatic infection. So in humans, it typically causes nothing. And so what's cool about both of those um, adenovirus types is that they can deliver their DNA pretty effectively at the injection site uh, to help, you know, show our vaccine, the coronavirus spike protein. And we are less likely to have been exposed to those particular um, adenoviruses before. So at least uh, in the case of the AstraZeneca first dose, and Johnson & Johnson is a one dose, um, we're delivering as much DNA to those cells as possible to be able to make sure that we are creating enough protein to, to get that immune response going. So can you talk about how adjuvants work in these vaccines? Um, we, we went way into detail on the mRNA side that those do not have adjuvants. What about this approach, these, these different platforms? Yeah, so the DNA vaccines also do not require an adjuvant, um, which is really exciting. We talked about this in the context of the mRNA vaccines because traditional vaccines that use uh, like an inactivated, like the whole virus, right? Like the whole tetanus um, or polio, um, that they, um, you're, that the uh, antigen, right? The thing that we're developing immunity against is being delivered as a inactivated virus or a weakened virus. And then in those traditional vaccines, you add uh, what's called an adjuvant, which is typically an aluminum-based molecule 
that is designed to just ramp up the immune system, get the immune system all hot and bothered so that that small amount of antigen is seen and we develop uh, a specific immune response against that small amount of antigen. What's in common between the mRNA vaccines and the adenovirus vaccines is that um, the, the thing that's ramping up the immune system is a little bit the delivery vehicle. So, um, you know, mRNA does increase immune activation a little bit, and certainly adenoviruses will by themselves. But it's the, the main thing is the, the spike protein that's being delivered is what's ramping up the immune system and causing the immune system to respond in a very specific way. And what's really cool about the adenoviruses is because you're, you're, we have, there's basically different parts of the immune system that are specialists. So we have um, specialists against viruses, we have specialists against bacteria, we have specialists against parasites. And so what's great about um, using an adenovirus vector to deliver viral DNA to train the immune system to recognize um, something like the novel coronavirus is that the way that you're activating the immune system with just the adenovirus vector and then the, the protein that our cells make is the same way that we our immune systems would uh, act if we were just infected with that virus, except what we've already covered on the show is the novel coronavirus actually manipulates and suppresses our immune systems. So you take that piece out of the equation and what you end up with at the end is actually way more robust and durable immunity. So it means that um, we basically have better protection against that virus than if we had natural infection. That's what actually a lot of the studies are bearing out now is that the vaccines deliver far better protection that's lasting much longer than people who've had um, COVID-19. It's actually the same for the DNA vaccines as it is for the mRNA vaccines. That's super exciting. I personally made an assumption in the other way and was like, uh, if I get chosen, me personally, for my choice, not suggesting anybody else, I was like, I don't know what I'll do. And I didn't have to make that decision. Um, but now that I know that there's no adjuvant, as someone who has a sensitive immune system, to put things mildly, um, that was always something that I wanted to avoid. Um, and I know one of the things that was kind of interesting to me also was the kind of ingredients that go into a vaccine. So one mm -hmm. of the things that I did is in your show notes, you've like listed what some of the ingredients are and being the person that I am not a scientist, but super geeked out on ingredient safety. <laughs> so I went on to so someone who has PubChem in their bookmarks. Yes, Just, yes, yes, yes. And you know what, I'm going to wear I'm going to wear that badge proudly today. <laughs> um, but you know, I talk about ingredient safety in every aspect of my life. And um, I'm not I'm not going to approach something else that I'm doing differently. Uh, although admittedly, you know, having been someone who went through all the way up to my 30s, not paying attention to that and having like multiple tattoos that had mercury in it, like, oh my gosh. But anyway, um, hopefully our bodies are detoxing all of that. And now we're trying to make better choices about ingredients. And um, the, I, after looking up on both EWG and PubChem of the ingredients in these vaccines, I was surprised. I was genuinely expecting something worse, especially given 
what is in popular culture, the assumptions that people make about the ingredients Mm -hmm. that go into a vaccine. And so this is the first time I've actually looked all of them up, if that makes sense. Um, Yeah, no, and I I think um, what's really cool about both the mRNA vaccines and the adenovirus vaccines is that they do have this like really clean ingredients list. Um, They they are missing a lot of the things that are added to traditional vaccines like preservatives or, um, you know, they're missing the adjuvants, which is fantastic for us. Um, They're missing things like there's sometimes antibiotics added to traditional vaccines and that can cause allergic reactions. So one of the reasons why we're seeing such a, a low rate of allergic reactions is that there's no egg protein in these, there's no latex in these, like there's none of the ingredients that would normally um, be considered the culprit, you know, if the mRNA vaccines, the allergy to polyethylene glycol is incredibly rare, um, which is why certainly there are, are some, that's why when we go get our vaccine, we're sitting in our car for, for 15 minutes, unless we've ever had an allergic reaction before. And then it's 30 for monitoring just, just to be on the safe side. Um, but the, the actual allergy rates to these vaccines are much lower than traditional vaccines as well. So, Let's let's actually talk briefly about the types of ingredients that are in these vaccines. So they obviously have this like super cool engineered virus that will deliver the DNA for the uh, novel coronavirus spike protein. So super cool. Um, then they have uh, basically similar to the mRNA vaccines, pH buffering um, agents to to maintain a very narrow pH range for for the. Uh, fluid that the virus is sitting in. So in the case of the the Johnson & Johnson and Janssen vaccine, uh, that is citric acid uh, in two different forms. (laughs) So it's citric acid monohydrate and trisodium citrate dihydrate. It's citric acid. It's the same organic acid that we get from citrus fruit. Um, There's some ethanol, delicious. That is uh, the same kind of delicious alcohol in uh, wine, beer, and spirits. Um, there is a cool sugar molecule. Um, it's called 2-hydroxypropyl beta cyclodextrin. I did practice saying that. Um, it's it's a uh, it actually is um, seven different sugars in a little little circle, and it's basically used to um, improve solubility of various compounds. And toxicology studies show that it's extremely safe. There's, there's no, nothing has turned up in those studies. So for a, you know, thing to, to maintain solubility so you don't get a precipitate in your, in your vaccine, that's a fantastic choice. Um, there's some polysorbate 80, which is added as an emulsifier. Again, we don't want, we don't want chunks because if you inject chunks into a person, that's generally bad. Uh, again, toxicology studies have shown no red flags that's come up as a, as a very safe option. And there's a little bit of salt, sodium chloride. And that's, that's the, the, all of the ingredients. I mean, just like the mRNA vaccines, the ingredients lists are impressively clean. And I just want to confirm that validated on PubChem. I have really nothing, <laughs> nothing to add to this conversation. <laughs> So like the mRNA vaccines, um, these were able to be developed really quickly because of, you know, decades and decades of research using adenoviruses as DNA delivery vectors. Um, There was more vaccine research using adenoviruses um, to base on. So the 
these vectors have been used. They're used in the, the rabies vaccine that our pets get is an adenovirus vector. And the only human vaccine um, that has been sort of widely used, although obviously not nearly as widely as the, the COVID-19 vaccines, is uh, the Ebola vaccine is also an adenovirus vector. So there was there was more of that type of research to draw on. And one of the things that that research actually helped to to show for the development of these vaccines is the safety profile of adenoviruses as DNA delivery uh, vectors was very well established. I mean, that's been established since the early 90s. Um, but also the dose was very well understood, like how much viral particles do you need to give for there to be enough protein that our cells make in order to get enough of a, an immune response to really um, solidify that immunological memory. So all of that information was already existing. So it was pretty much just a question of, you know, do we get, do we have the sequence? Yes, we do. And then we can go straight into uh, phase two, three clinical trials. So, um, so let's talk about those clinical trials and what they showed. Yes, we are going to talk about the blood clots and I'm using air quotes because there is a Sarah rant coming on that one. Um, but let's actually just look at what the, the really rigorous, um, trials have actually shown. So let's start with the most important number for the Johnson and Johnson and Janssen. Stacy, I know you want to share this one. This actually, I, um, this is a, a pet peeve of mine. I know you're going to have a rant about something else, but it's fascinating to me that the, um, media leads with like the lowest number and it's mm -hmm. like, dun, 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 instead of why not leading with prevented a hundred percent of deaths from mm -hmm. COVID-19. Like that's, that's a good number. I like that number. Um, between, uh, it prevented 80, over 85% of critical cases and 77% of severe cases and 67% of a, of symptomatic cases in, in those studies, I, you know, and we're going to talk about, um, whether or not we can compare efficacy numbers, but the, the top line here is the thing that we really care about is keeping people out of the hospital and keeping people alive. That is um, the, the most important thing that a vaccine can deliver. Um, obviously, it's also better if we can keep you from ever having to miss a week of work because you're sick, um, but that's much lower on the, the priority totem pole than uh, keeping you alive and ideally keeping the strain off of the, the hospital um, system. And I am, so I am curious, sorry to interrupt. Um, one of the things that we're seeing now because of the mRNA vaccines having been out longer, um, and I'm curious if you know these numbers off the top of your head, and sometimes I like to play this game with Sarah and see what yes. happens, um, <laughs> is regarding long haul symptoms. So I see a number like 67% efficacy. That's always a number that I, a word I cannot properly pronounce. Um, and I wonder, well, is that helping the immune system completely fight it in a different way than someone who, like myself, had what would have been classified as that, right? A very mild case, but then my immune system never fully fought it off. And so I've been having these symptoms for like a year that are not great. I don't like them. I don't like them at all. Um, and now we're seeing that the mRNA vaccines are helping. We also know, I'll just say, because I know that this is the case, that um, the JJJ vaccine is also helping those long yeah. hauler symptoms. So when you look at something like 
the efficacy of symptomatic being 67%, my assumption would tell me that that one third of people that are still getting that mild case are not part of the general population of one third of those people would get long haulers. Is that a fair assumption? Do we have that in the science or any, do you know, am I being clear enough for you to understand my question? Okay. Yeah. So I think there's like three different pieces of the question. So I think the most important piece is about breakthrough infections. So the people who are fully vaccinated and uh, still contracting disease, Um, I have looked up and down to see if there are any cases of long haulers among that very small cohort at this point. And I have been able to see zero anecdotal reports of long haulers from breakthrough infections. Um, But my guess is we won't really know the answer to that until um, more people are vaccinated and there are more examples of breakthrough infections. Um, what I can say is that we are going to cover breakthrough infections in a lot more detail, um, next week on another (laughs) COVID-19 vaccine follow-up show where we're going to cover some of the new, um, studies that have come out that are really important for, for, um, people to, to know, um, from real world data, but also some studies on, on mRNA vaccines and other groups of people. Um, but from that data right now, you know, we can't say for sure that it's, um, preventing long haulers, but we can say that the people who are having breakthrough cases, the vast majority are having mild to moderate, um, diseases rather than severe critical uh, and worse. So that's that's one piece. The other piece that you mentioned is that there is some good evidence now that the vaccines are helping to cure long haulers. So people who've had long haulers and have been dealing with it for months, like you have, Stacey, um, that the, the vaccines seem to be resolving it in 40 to 50% of cases. Um, and that that may be due to you know, we don't fully understand exactly what's going on in long haulers. So there's some evidence that it might be something like chronic fatigue syndrome, in which case it may just be sort of like reactivating the immune system and kind of getting the immune system to reset is what is helping in that case. Um, And then there's some evidence too, that it may be a persistent infection. So the immune system never completely gets rid of all of the COVID-19 in your body or well, SARS-CoV-2 in your body. And so um, whenever your immune system's a little suppressed, you're you know, stressed, you didn't sleep well last night, you can get you're a little cycling. bit more bioreplication. Mm-hmm. You're, you're having your uh, menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things that may um, suppress your immune system for a few days, um, that gives the vaccine a little bit of a chance, or the virus, sorry, a little bit of a chance to replicate. And then you might get some symptoms um, sort of cyclically, or some people have had symptoms really consistently and sort of report. It's like reaching into a, a bag and pulling out a couple of symptoms and those will be your symptoms for the day. But of course, <laughs> of course, like, that's totally what's happening in my body. It's like juggling. It's like, which one are we going to drop here? Um, COVID-19 is like that, right? I mean, yeah. do we have a symptom yet? I don't know that there's a symptom that has not been attributed to this virus now. It causes a, a incredible wide range of symptoms in people and people's disease experience can be very, very different, not just in severity, but in just the the types of symptoms that were experienced. Yeah. And I, I will say that's like my number one criticism of how the media covered it from early on is I think if they would have explained to people, it isn't just a death toll. It's also like your, your health after having had 
this experience that we know now at least one third of people are continuing to experience symptoms after 14 days, right? Whether that's months or, you know, in some cases over a year, um, would someone be more diligent if they knew that it, it wasn't like the flu at all earlier on, yeah. right? And so um, I know it's kind of been my passion when I look at, for example, the JJ and J vaccine, and I'm like, okay, 67%. But if that's kicking it entirely, and you have a very mild case, I mean, that's almost kind of what I experienced when I had my first shot a week later, because I feel like it did activate that virus in me. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I I, basically did that. And, and I hope that it kicked it for me. I'm, I'm, you know, all fingers and toes crossed everywhere is that was, you know, the boost that my immune system needed. But I also appreciate that they're continuing to say, okay, now how can we continue to improve this? What happens if we give another shot? Because these numbers are not apples to apples to the mRNA vaccines in terms of how they're reporting out from um, where they went. And I I know you're going to get into a little bit of that later on, like, how do we compare these numbers? But Mm -hmm. um, also, there's only one shot, right? And so it's like, we can get to more people more quickly, and reduce the numbers. And then can we come back, you know, they're continuing to do testing at this point, can we come back and then increase the numbers even better with a second shot? Um, So I I, this was all kind of like, oh, this I see this way more positively than kind of where I was with it um, weeks or, you know, a while ago. I don't know. I think I think um, both the, the Johnson & Johnson and the AstraZeneca vaccines have um, not been served well by the media. And I think in part that is because, you know, science writers with science backgrounds are certainly in the minority. Um, and so you know, when you're a a journalist and you don't necessarily understand all the science behind it, you know, sometimes picking the top line information is a little bit more challenging. Um, But I think also, you know, there's been a lot of fear mongering on the internet about the vaccines and um, any, anything that can be portrayed as a negative is in that case, easier to magnify and easier to, to, to focus on. And so I think one of the things that's really important to me to do with these shows is to present all of this information, um, including talking about the the pause um, for, for the Johnson & Johnson and Janssen vaccine, also why the AstraZeneca vaccine has not been yet approved in uh, the USA, and and sort of talk about, you know, what what is the data behind those things? And so that we can really give our listeners um, I, I really science, fact-based, knowledge-based that's also really comprehensive and can and can really understand the context and nuance behind these numbers as well as the adverse events. It's important, I think, to to mention that there were no red flags that came up in terms of safety in um, these clinical trials for either uh, J&J or AstraZeneca. Um, and that is important to put into context because both of them have come up with some rare adverse events once they've been deployed in the community. And that is something that's sort of expected to happen. So if, if those um, types of adverse events had come up in um, the phase two clinical trial, um, the frequency that would have implied to the frequency of those events was much higher. And that potentially would have meant that those vaccines never would have been 
uh, approved in the first place, depending on exactly what the numbers would have shown. Um, there's certain rare events that you basically can't know that they occur until the vaccine is being given to a lot, a lot of people. And that's why the monitoring systems are so important. Um, so it's there's a system in the USA called vSafe that's run by the CDC. And I definitely encourage everyone getting the whatever um, COVID-19 vaccine you get to sign up for it. You'll get sent a little text message every day for a week and then every week for a couple more weeks um, asking you to fill out. It's a very fast little um, you know, just, you know, fill in, fill in the multiple choice type, type survey. It's just a few questions and it's just monitoring, uh, side effects. If they're worried about you, someone from the CDC will call you to check in, um, and, you know, tell you actually you need to go to a doctor, but it is exactly that monitoring system that was able to detect these rare, uh, adverse events. Um, and the pause was about collecting more data to really understand them. So we're going to talk about that in more detail. I want to talk a little bit more about the AstraZeneca data first. Um, but that system is uh, it's working as designed. Um, so as soon as there's a signal in this broader general population, then that can be investigated and the decisions can be made moving forward. Makes sense to me. Okay, so I guess one of the questions that I have lingering um, is... I guess, A, why are we talking about AstraZeneca? Because B, why is it not approved in the United <laughs> States? Although after I said that out loud, I'm like, you know what? We have listeners from all over the world. Hello, international listeners. And for those mm -hmm. of you who are like, please talk about the one that I have access to. We're here for you. Um, but maybe you could talk about why it's not yet available in the in the States. Yeah, for sure. So um, I thought it was important to kind of cover because it's the it's so similar, right? Just like the the, the Pfizer and Moderna are incredibly similar vaccines, the uh, Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca are incredibly similar vaccines. So it kind of makes sense to sort of talk about them together. Um, but the reason why, um, well, I guess top line, um, the AstraZeneca also prevented 100% of severe disease hospitalization and death and was about 62% effective against symptomatic disease in their initial trials. The reason why those weren't, uh, it wasn't approved in the USA is that the US trial for AstraZeneca is still ongoing um, and uh, domestic trials are required for approval in the US. Um, the trial was delayed for um, about seven weeks last fall. There was a an adverse reaction in a UK participant that was later determined not to be related to the vaccine, but it caused a pause in the entire trial. Um, and the FDA has kind of looked at the initial trial results. Um, AstraZeneca has not, has not applied for EAU. Uh, it was basically told that its data is a bit of a mess. Um, and so it really needs that rigorous U.S. trial to be completed before it can apply. It's actually expected to be completed very soon. Um, and so the, the thought is that they will approve, uh, they will apply for an EAU uh, in the USA potentially next month. Um, but one of the things that happened in their initial trials was um, the way that they combined some of the data between the Brazilian group and the UK group, even though they had different sample sizes and different demographics was not, it wasn't really statistically the right way to approach it. And then they had, um, they had a mistake made in their uh, UK group where um, a fairly large number of people got a different, they got a half dose for their first shot 
and a full dose for their second instead of two full dose shots. And they had very, very different efficacy data, which may not be actually related to the dosing regimen and might be more related to the demographics of that sample. But because of those things, um, that's why in America we're like, no, we need the, we need the, 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 this trial that um, has a better uh, demographic um, distribution. So also only 12% of the participants in the UK and Brazilian trials for AstraZeneca were over 55 in the US trial. That'll be a full quarter. Um, so they, they, they're wrapping up this trial in the U S they've gotten some really exciting results that they've at least announced in a press release. We don't have the, the full data to go through. Um, so they're saying that the U S trial has shown 79% efficacy against preventing, um, symptomatic COVID-19. Um, so as they're wrapping up that trial, it, it will almost certainly also get approved, um, in, in the USA, but it's just a, they're, they're, initial trials were sort of plagued with, with, um, challenges that they're now overcoming, which is fantastic. But this is why there's such a rigorous system for, uh, data quality and, um, and how, you know, how these studies are designed, what they're monitoring, what the, the demographic, demographic distribution needs to be, uh, for the participants and then what the results are. And so this is actually in a lot of ways, um, it's it's the system working the way it's supposed to, right? We want to see all of this rigorous rigorous data, um, and the U.S. just you know they want to see a domestic a domestic trial result um, in order for it to be approved. And so that one's that one's just wrapping up. I do love that we have rigorous testing standards, and that um, we don't in the state say, oh, somebody else is using it, it must be fine then. Right. I think there's a lot of um, assumptions and confusion around the approval process because there are, you know, temporary approvals and people will say things like, you know, that's not even approved yet. Um, And I I just want to be really clear. I mean, I, for those of you that don't know, worked in the federal regulation space for 20 years. That was my career, was a government regulation expert. And there's a difference between like the government being able to fully approve something, which is literally um, requires things like putting it out to the public and asking for um, feedback and then walking through this whole regulation process. Like the the way that regulations work is there's a literal timeline that can't be compressed. It, it has to go through a certain time. And so you can get to a point where you've determined by the government standards that something is safe and then give approval and say, okay, we know that this is on track for finalization and approval and safety. So we're going to give that, um, what's the, what's the actual word for emergency, emergency, emergency use authorization. Thank you. Versus saying it's final and approved, right? Like those are two totally different things, but it doesn't mean that it is not approved. And that's those words and how they're being used are very confusing, understandably for someone that it doesn't fully understand the ins and outs of the of the system and the regulation and how these things work. But it's not like, you know, some manufacturer of a vaccine is like, hey, this, this is good. Wink, wink, thumbs up, you know, and like, <laughs> the FDA is like, cool, we're down and puts it out. There is a rigorous process. And so you can see that from the AstraZeneca. And I think you can also see it. I know we're going to talk more in depth about how they handled the 
um, blood clots with the Johnson and Johnson, right? Again, like, blood clots with air quotes. Right. Okay. Thank All you. the air quotes around the words blood clot. And, Again, there's rant coming. And what happens is if you are like I was early on, um, trying to avoid risk, you hear something like that and you hear people extrapolate, oh, it's not safe, right? That's not what anybody said. Just because they paused doesn't mean that it wasn't safe. And I think that's the thing that we really want to educate and empower everybody on is kind of like we talked about with the Seaspiracy podcast, right? Just because there's one fact here doesn't mean dot, 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 this other thing. It yeah. just means what somebody said. And so that's why we're here to, to talk about the facts. And just because AstraZeneca isn't approved in the States today doesn't mean that it's not safe. It means that we are doing tests to ensure that it is. And um, I just, I appreciate that about the states, I do think that there is much to be learned from continual um, education and watching of these things. But to say, oh, well, we don't know what this will do to you in 20 years, therefore, it's not safe, like, stop extrapolating, stop saying, you know, stop, stop making assumptions. Um, and let's look at the facts, let's look at the science of what we know. And also, um, consider when people say these sorts of things, one of the first things that I tell myself is we also don't know what COVID vaccine, what, what the COVID virus is going to do to people in 20 years. Yeah. And I can, I can tell you, and we've covered it on this show, we know that it is um, affecting hearts. We know that it's affecting lungs. Um, we're seeing now that it's kind of like um, for those people who have brain problems like I've had, mm -hmm. that it's manifesting almost like dementia in people over time. Yeah. So do I want those it's things? It's causing it's causing diabetes. Like it no is, thanks. Yeah. I'm a hard pass on all that. Like I don't mm -hmm. want heart problems and dementia and whatever. Like, and I I think that's the that's the thing that I tell myself when people start um, being hyperbolic about the potential risks. And that's what it is. They're extrapolating to a hyperbolic state about potential risks. And what is the likelihood of that? What where is the fact basis on and that? And potential risks that aren't even based on a data point. That's the other thing about extrapolating on the on the vaccines. So for me, um, I try to remind myself, what is the facts? What do I know? I know that if I'm exposed to this virus, not only do I have the potential risk for dying, I also have the potential risk, even if I come out well on the other side, that definition of well has quotation marks around it. And 30 to 50% of people are seeing long term negative health effects as a result. So does the data on the vaccine show us that there's a potential for 30 to 50% long-term negative health effects of things like, you know, heart damage and brain damage? No, we are not no. seeing that at all. So I think um, before we actually get into, again, in air quotes, the blood clots and the, and the, the pause, um, and we're going to talk mainly about the, the Johnson and Johnson pause, but actually the AstraZeneca pause in the European Union was, was pretty similar. Um, let's talk a little bit about this piece that you alluded to, Stacey, about comparing the efficacy numbers and um, the idea of like, but I want the 95% one. I don't want the, I don't want the 70% one. And I think it's really important to sort of emphasize that we cannot do a direct comparison between 
the um, efficacy against symptomatic disease between these vaccines and any of the vaccines. Like it, we can't compare unless we do a head-to-head trial to actually look at it. And part of the reason why they may be different, I mean, there might be a true, you know, efficacy difference. So there might just be a, you know, we get a little bit better immunological memory from this system versus this system. There could be a true difference, but also these um, vaccines were tested in different countries and at different times. And so it's also pretty likely that the variants that were circulating may have impacted the results. So we know that there's less coverage of uh, some of the variants, especially um, the the South African um, uh, and the Brazilian variants, the the P2 and the the B135. So, um, So we know that that can impact the efficacy data. So the Moderna vaccine was tested in the USA and now they're moving to testing everywhere else. Pfizer was originally tested in the USA and in Germany before the B117 um, variant became dominant. J&J has also tested in Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Mexico, Peru, South Africa, and of course the US. And the AstraZeneca also tested in Brazil, South Africa, and the UK initially, where there's uh, variants of concern are the dominant variants, and then is also running trials in the US, Japan, Russia, Kenya, and Latin America. So um, part of those that efficacy number may just reflect um, the dynamics of the infection at the time and in the location of where the, the clinical trials went. And then also um, how each of these trials is sort of defined symptomatic infection is a little bit different. So some of them had said one symptom and then we do a test. And if so, if it's one symptom plus a positive test, you count as an, uh, an infection. And some have said two symptoms and then we'll run a test. And then if you have a positive test. So that also changes, right? How you define exactly what a, you know, symptomatic cases within the clinical trial also matters. So if we actually want to be able to say one's better than the other, we need to test it. We need to do one trial where different vaccines are administered um, in a blinded fashion, and then we look at that data. I think that's really important to point out. I'm glad you went in depth on that because it is definitely what is led with in um main news sources. And Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things to consider is, you know, instead of I want the the 95% one or whatever, it's, you know, do you want to ensure that if you're going to choose to get a vaccine, you want to choose that it's safe and that it's going to protect you? And how do you find protection is really, you know, what you just kind of like walked through. And are you satisfied with the protection that you would get knowing that it's 100% covering your safety of dying from the coronavirus? Is that really what, you know, is most important? Would you rather get it than not get it? And because a lot of people, this is what's available. And if that's the case, the that's a factor for me, for sure. I'll just for leave sure. it at that. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about this other thing that's blowing up the news and social media mm-hmm. right now um and also fueling a lot of conspiracy theories because the minute that we hear something negative it's also what we talked about then you take that thread of truth and you expand it yep. into so much more right so let's address um 
let's let's this elephant in the room, the clot in our blood. <laughs> okay, so I I really want to start this by saying that um, calling these uh, rare adverse events blood clots, even calling it a rare type of blood clot is incredibly misleading. It does not represent what's actually happening. And it um, it has the effect of both sort of being fear-mongering while also diminishing at the same time. Um, I've seen sort of comparisons to, you know, okay, well, if the, the risk of one of these rare blood clots is like one in 500,000 from this vaccine, well, the risk of getting a, a blood clot from taking birth control pills is one in a thousand. And it's just not comparable. And one of the reasons why it's not comparable is um, the way that you treat these two different conditions is very different. So if you have what I would call a run-of-the-mill blood clot, I'm using air quotes again, of course, audio medium, it's, it's, not, really a, it's not really a good choice, but I don't, have a, I don't have another option. But if you talk about an embolism or a thrombosis, right, so think deep vein thrombosis, um, other than these sort of large cataclysmic events, right, like a large ischemic stroke or myocardial infarction, right, large pulmonary embolisms, those are obviously life-threatening situations. But if you, uh, if you think about the, the more common types of um, clotting events that are occurring, they can generally be treated and they're treated with blood thinners. Um, and you may then, you know, end up on a, you might end up on like, uh, you know, warfarin or something for, for a long period of time to prevent clots or a baby aspirin or something like that. But they're, they're basically, you know, if you show up with the symptoms in the emergency room, they, you know, might do a scan or they might, you know, in, in some cases, right, in the cases of strokes, um, the survival rate is incredibly different if you're given a blood thinner within an hour compared to after an hour. Um, so blood thinners just <laughs> go in and that's like, that's part of the, the routine treatment. Um, and the reason why it's so important to not call these adverse events blood clots is because they're not just simple blood clots. It's actually an autoimmune disease called immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia. And in this case, it is uh, low platelets combined with clots. And so if you administer that person a blood thinner, it causes hemorrhages um, because they actually also have low platelets at the same time. And it becomes um, something that is an incredibly dangerous situation. So the problem is that it can be so easily mistreated if it is viewed as a blood clot. And that's one of the reasons why the, the pause was so important is because even though the media is still representing uh, this immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia as blood clots, which I think is a, a mischaracterization of what's actually happening, there has been a really intense education of medical professionals, um, as well as they're adding um, a symptom checklist to seek medical attention immediately if your symptoms um, look like immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia, because if it is treated... Um, uh, treated uh, on a reasonable time scale and in the right way is extremely treatable. Um, and so the, the pause was about understanding what's going on, who's, who's at risk, um, looking for more cases uh, compared to the original six that, that was what reported that caused the pause. Um, but the more important aspect of this, besides just the evaluating the safety piece of the pause, was an education piece. And that is 
you know, I've, I've seen a lot of news stories now that have sort of said like the pause was terrible. It's eroded vaccine confidence. And I view it as exactly the way the monitoring system is supposed to work. If you see a signal, you pump the brakes, you evaluate it, you decide, you know, what, what's going, you figure out what's going on. Um, and then a judgment can be made based on the data. And then it either, uh, you know, in this case, a, a warning has been added and a, a very comprehensive, like 22 page um, education pay, uh, document for doctors has been created. Um, and you, you either you either go that route or you say, OK, we're going to limit who this vaccine can be used for. That's another option, depending on what the data shows. Um, or, you know, if if this was a, something that was. Um, you know, a high rate of adverse events and suddenly you go, okay, we, we, we don't, we don't evaluate this as being safe anymore. Then it could have been a, a permanent, you know, revoking of the, the EAU. In this case, um, what the studies showed was uh, for the, for the J and J, it was about one case in 500,000 of immune uh, thrombotic thrombocytopenia. Um, the incidence for AstraZeneca is about double that. Um, and then there's also been, um, for the AstraZeneca vaccine, there were reports of um, what are called cerebral venous thrombosis, which is a whole different thing. That is, uh, I would put under the uh, run-of-the-mill air quotes. I don't. I need a better. I need a better term than that because a run-of-the-mill blood clot sounds not quite right. Um, so the AstraZeneca had two different things being being looked at. So it had both immune thrombo thrombotic thrombocytopenia, something like one in a in a quarter million, um, as well as cerebral venous thrombosis together. Um, one of these rare events was about one in a hundred thousand. Um, it's important to mention though that the risk of having um, one of these uh, brain blood clots, basically the cerebral venous thrombosis. Um, or portal vein thrombosis, which is liver, uh, is about 10 times higher after just having natural infection with COVID-19 than after the AstraZeneca vaccine. So the, the pause in the EAU determined that um, this was, again, a very rare event. Um, they added um, you know, some education about it and um, also determined that the, for, for this particular type of clot, um, the the chances of having this after just getting COVID-19 are about 10 times higher. So in that case, the vaccine is much, much safer than walking around with, you know, really high infection rates pretty much still globally. I think that's a really important part. And one of the things that we mentioned in one of our, I think it might've been the first, maybe the second show is when we walked through adverse events, it was kind of a light bulb moment for me that some of these adverse events were because of the virus itself had, mm -hmm. um, uh, more uh, increased likelihood of those conditions. And one of the things that I want to call out, because I think you went over it really, really quickly, is um, the increase of this likelihood is much more likely in birth control, for example, which is personally, I don't, I wouldn't be messing with my hormones, but as a as a teen and as a 20 something, mm -hmm. I mean, it was handed to me with no risks, no discussion of um, alternatives or, you know what I mean? Like that's something that so many people, especially in this country, I don't know, but around the world are taking without considering 
the full the full range of how that affects their health or if they are well that's that's a risk that i'm willing to take because the if i don't take it alternatively this this thing could happen and i i don't want that to happen and so we're in the same situation and i think that it's very again hyperbolic and you're taking something that is a good thing, pausing and ensuring safety and making sure that doctors get educated on how to properly treat if they see something that they think is a blood clot, but is really a different health condition. And if you treat it the same, will cause greater damage and potential, you know, issues versus treating it properly um, and, and extrapolating that into... And here's why you don't want to do this thing, because six people out of, what is it, um, per million, then, right? <laughs> so, so um, actually, so the from the vaccine, it was, I think they had, in the end, they had 15 cases out of about 8 million um, doses. The, that's actually a really important piece to, to state, though, is that the normal, like this is, um, so immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia is an autoimmune condition um, that its normal incidence is about six people per million per year. Um, so it's also, there's um, there's still some causality that needs to be examined here um, in terms of understanding, you know, to say that there's there's roughly one case per, per half million doses um, the risk is higher in women age 18 to 50. In that case, the risk is more like one in 150,000. Um, and, um, and, but what we don't really completely understand is what is that signal above normal cases? So we don't have causality like super locked down here. Um, but regardless, this is really good education for doctors so that even if someone has immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia that is not in any way related to a vaccine, they're going to be treated properly. Um, so that I think is actually, it's, it's still net super positive to, to increase um, information on this would be a more, certainly a more rare um, autoimmune conditions than, than the ones we typically talk about on the show. I do think it's worth noting we did talk in the earlier shows about um, activation of autoimmune from vaccines. And I'm using quotation marks there because one of the things that we went into great detail on and pulled a lot of numbers and, and shared in detail and would apply the same way here is activating an immune system that is already having autoimmune disease in it is something um, that yes, a vaccine could do, but also is very likely going to come out in the course of a life at some point anyway, from pregnancy, yeah. from stress, from getting, you know, a different virus. There are so many things that we we inherently, those of us who have autoimmune disease, have autoimmune disease. And we know, those of us who have it, that it ebbs and flows, that it, that it flares and that you need to calm it down and you need, you know, all these sort of things. And so there are incidences incidences of, um, you know, N equals one type of, well, I got the vaccine and then this autoimmune condition happened to me. And what the science showed, and I recommend that you go back and listen to Sarah's detail on this in the prior show, is that that's we're not seeing that the vaccine caused those cases. The yeah. research in the science shows that what it's doing is activating the immune system so that we see 
we see it, it surfaces, it flares, it was always there to begin with. And so I just I want to point that out, because we're pointing to an autoimmune condition here. And I know we have so many people who are listeners who have that same condition, and they might be wondering, does that increase my personal chance of getting this, where in another instance, I wouldn't get it. And we did talk in detail about that in a prior show. And it's worth pointing out, I think. Um, I think it's also helpful to kind of talk about what immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia looks like normally. Um, So um, part of understanding like why were all 15 cases in women, this is also an autoimmune disease that uh, vastly um, uh, is seen more in young women than, than other demographics. So it's at least three to one. Uh, women to men. So at least three quarters of, of the cases are women. The median age of onset is 40 years. Um, the mortality, if it's untreated, is very high. It's about 90%. Um, but the treatments are excellent now. So, um, But again, it, it's why a doctor who recognizes what this is is really important. Um, so, um, so what's actually happening compared to something like, um, you know, the word thrombocytopenia might be uh, familiar to our listeners because of immune thrombocytopenia purpura, which is a different autoimmune disease that looks pretty similar. So in uh, thrombocytopenia purpura, the um, immune system is ta- attacking platelets. And so you end up with low platelets and you can't clot. And that's um, something we actually talked about in our first show when we we're talking about vaccine-induced injury, because it is um, a known adverse um, event after uh, the MMR vaccine at a much lower rate than what is known to occur um, as a consequence of rubella infection. Um, uh, thrombotic thrombocytopenia is a little bit different because what's being attacked is something called the von Willebrand factor cleaving protease, which is also named ADAMTS13. Um, and uh, what this, um, what von Willebrand factor is, is it's a, a protein that actually helps platelets um, bind to each other that floats around in our blood. And what happens when you attack the, the enzyme that's job it is, is to break up von Willebrand factor, is you get these like clumps of von Willebrand factor that causes platelets to, to group together really, really strongly. So it forms uh, what are called thrombosis, that is a blood clot, um, but then it depletes the platelets from the blood because they're all binding up in these little like gloms um, with von Willebrand factor. So it's, um, you know, it's an autoimmune disease where they know exactly what the antibodies are being uh, made um, that are attacking exactly what protein. It's a very well understood condition. And um, what happens in normal treatment um, is you would be given uh, an intravenous immune immunoglobulin um, uh, treatment. And then once your platelets are up, you might be given some kind of non-heparin-based anticoagulation. Um, so heparin causes uh, in this condition. So heparin is the go-to blood thinner if you have a very bad clot. And in this particular condition, um, it causes a uh, sort of paradoxical additional clotting and then can also um, cause hemorrhaging. So that's why heparin is is super not used. Um, and then for most people, they only have one, this happens one time. So 60 to 70% of people, this will happen once and then it'll never happen again. Um, for the rest, they'll have two or more, not predictable. Um, there may be an infectious trigger, there may not be. 
Um, it's it's uh, one of those autoimmune diseases that kind of just comes and you have this thing where you need to get medical attention and then it, it goes away. And there are other autoimmune diseases that are like that. For people who are, are listening, the symptoms would include um, severe headache, uh, changes in vision, abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting, back pain, shortness of breath, uh, leg pain or swelling, um, and easy bruising or bleeding. Um, and so the the CDC is basically adding this list of symptoms to the patient handouts um, for for the J and J vaccine, and then they're they're adding a uh, basically like a checklist for doctors to follow to do the testing to make sure that um, anybody who who does have this is treated properly so that it is, you know, a, you know, not a, not a fun thing to go through to have an adverse event after a vaccine, um, but that it's not the, the life-threatening situation that it can be if it's mistreated. It is definitely more clear to me. I feel like you've already answered this, but I want to be explicitly clear. Do you feel like our listeners who have autoimmune disease, I'm not going to use the word should, um, mm-hmm. would be better served to avoid these, either this vaccine or these pairs of vaccines. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to give you an, a non-answer answer. Um, so what we can say. Understanding on... that we also can't give medical advice. Right. <laughs> um, you know, what we can say um, that's really important is that this is a adverse event that is treatable. Um, when doctors know to look for it. And that is what the pauses were about, right? Was basically making sure that if you were um, a person who had this, that it would be treated and it would life would go, go on as normal afterwards. Um, it's also something that is very, very rare. Um, so the, the, the calculus is that in a million shots of J&J, they would expect two cases um, of thrombotic thrombocytopenia, and that trade would be for 2,000 fewer deaths and 6,000 fewer COVID-related hospitalizations. Um, so the 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 math is sort of like obvious. But the other thing that I think is really important to um, to state is that having another autoimmune disease does not automatically mean that you're at higher risk of developing. Um, thrombotic thrombocytopenia. So there have been some studies that have looked at um, risk genes um, for thrombotic thrombocytopenia, and a lot of the common um, risk genes for other autoimmune diseases are actually protective, um, especially DRB104 is protective. Um, so, um, you know, there are some risk genes. We'll put a put a link in, in the paper for anyone who sort of has their, their 23andMe data, you know, sitting there and wants to look it up. Um, but studies have shown, um, you know, basically having an autoimmune disease does not mean you have the risk genes. You may have some protective genes um, against this. Um, also, the studies have shown that having risk genes is in no way sufficient for it to develop. Um, so there's believed to be some really complex um, factors that are are behind this this particular autoimmune disease, and they have not yet been identified. So, you know, the the data would not support saying that our you know autoimmune disease listeners are at greater risk. Um, and it, but at this point, it's also you know without understanding the etiology of the disease in more detail, um, you know, it's it's hard to to state the negative of that statement to, as well, right? 
Agreed. And I think the other perspective for me, just to kind of wrap this up in the same answer, is that there's no adjuvant in this vaccine that would also play a factor in my personal decision on getting this as someone who has autoimmune disease. An adjuvant, for example, aluminum, isn't something that my body would detox as well as somebody else's, but that's not a factor. And I think that was also a confusion in the different platforms of this vaccine. So those would be kind of like my two things that I would be really focused on when making a personal decision. I can tell you that when I booked my appointment for my my first, what turned out to be my, my first shot of Moderna, I did not know which vaccine I was getting. I, I, I booked an appointment that was a cancellation. I went out of the place. It could have been any of Pfizer, Moderna, or J&J, and I would have taken whatever they had for me. Um, so that was my personal calculus. And again, you know, we're, we're not in the business of, of telling people what to do. Um, but I can say that my reading of this um, information was comfort. If, if J&J was what they had for me, that's, that's what I would have had in my arm. Um, and I think it's really important as we wrap this up to, to emphasize that there's a really important niche for both the, the JJ and J vaccine, as well as the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccines. Um, they are cheaper to make than the mRNA vaccines. They're easier to ship and store. They don't have the same cold chain requirements, so they don't have to be kept as cold through the entire shipping. So they are easier to send to places like rural America or developing nations. Um, and they're much more cost effective um, to, to give to populations. Um, so it's it's also really important to emphasize that, um, you know, in the USA, we've been doing just an amazing job of rolling out the, the vaccine. It's giving us, a lot of us, um, this wonderful sense of sort of like light at the end of the tunnel. And and it's and it's wonderful. And there are other countries that are, that are also just like rocking it in terms of um, vaccine delivery. Um, but we're not at the other end of this pandemic until the entire world is at the end of this pandemic. And while there are places where the novel coronavirus is able to replicate, um, you know, in the population, you know, even though this is a virus that mutates very slowly, it's given so many opportunities to mutate because every person that gets infected is an opportunity to mutate that that's why we're seeing these variants of concern. And we want to make sure that we are using this tool globally so that there's not, it protects us here, right? There's there's not a, a hotspot somewhere where everyone's getting COVID-19 and then some kind of variant is able to, to mutate that um, our, the vaccines don't protect against, right? That is that is the, the concern. So these these vaccines also being easier to send to, to places um, uh, because they don't need to be kept as cold because they're much more stable in a, in a refrigerator for a long period of time. That makes them a, a super useful, useful tool um, for that big picture. How do we get to the other side? Um, and even, you know, in America, it's a great option for, um, you know, Johnson Johnson for people who are scared of needles. You only have to do it once. Um, it's been used as a wonderful tool for unhoused people who might be harder to track down for their second shot. Um, and you could imagine, right, people with a busy schedule might have a similar sort of situation where um, it's just hard to be in the right spot for that second shot. You could think of that applying to, you know, truckers or, or flight attendants, um, you know, people who are, are um, just have these like really crazy schedules and are traveling a lot. So there's there's a super utility and a um, a hole that these vaccines fill um, that Pfizer and Moderna just can't. 
because of the how complicated they are to store and to ship. Um, and so I think it's really important to, to wrap up on a note of um, these are more tools in our toolbox to get through this pandemic and, um, and something that uh, I certainly appreciate. I think that's, I'm really glad that you mentioned all those things because I, it's critical to everyone's health and wellness. Um, one of the things that, you know, I didn't say at the top of the show, but is inherent to our podcast is that we have spent the last, I think, eight years at this point dedicated to every aspect of the health, safety, and wellness of everyone. And we've tried to cover this from a lot of different angles because there's so many things that go into lifestyle and just living in general that play a part in our quality of life, i.e. health, wellness, and safety. And I think we oftentimes get so caught up in our own health, wellness, and safety that we forget that part of what a vaccine is doing is protecting others. That by as a whole, if those of us who systems are able to be vaccinated and we can make a difference and we choose that, um, it makes a difference in the lives of those who might be immune compromised or um, in an older family member who is not able to get the vaccine as quickly because they're housebound or um, all the cases, the examples that you gave, Sarah. And I think that um, when it comes to looking at those people who are people of color. We know that they're being vaccinated at a lower rate, despite the fact that they have higher incidence of adverse effects from and a higher um, likelihood to get the virus to begin with. And so the more um, those people who are in a position to make a decision to avoid it, and the more the media talks about it from a negative perspective, the less confidence that people have to go and get the vaccine that could be life-changing, not just for themselves, but for others around them. And um, I know from personal experience, being a vaccine-hesitant person, that hearing these things, it strikes a chord in me that immediately makes me fearful and hesitant. And I think when we cover these shows... And we talk about the science and I look up every ingredient and pub chem and we talk about the detailed trials and the results of those trials. And even just the the fact that these quote unquote blood clots are not even really increasing the likelihood. It's just we're calling out and educating it because um of what we're seeing in reactions to people. And when we look at the factors of how frequently they occurred, I think you said, Sarah, there were six in 15 million or there were 15 and 8 million. Some, I don't mm-hmm. know. Anyway, yeah. my, it's the second one. Yes. You got it right the second time. Yep. Okay. So when we do the math on, you know, how many there are in the regular population, it's not like there's this huge spike of people who had it occur when they took the vaccine. It's just that our government is saying, hey, whoa, we need to stop and educate providers because if we are going to see this, we want to make sure that we're doing everything as care providers to protect the safety, the wellness of those people who might have this happen to them. And um, it's not it's not shared that way, which is so unfortunate. Yeah. It's shared in a, in a fearful way, just like, I mean, I read this article the other day about how it increases the... Um, 
the length amount we're seeing um, women who have longer periods after they're getting their vaccine but then like as you read into the details of it that's because of the way that the platelets are responding which is decreasing your blood clot for a very short amount of time and then the very next cycle it's totally fine and and as someone who um, has gone through long haulers who I mean, I don't know how many times, Sarah, I said to you before we saw it in literature, I'm telling you it's around my cycle. There's something going on with yeah. my cycle, right? And I'm, and we, we did figure I would, out. I would say for like at least two or three months before it was really yeah. popping up in the scientific literature. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, now people are taking something that we know what's what the reason that it is it's not a long-term health effect there's nothing dangerous and they they take a little fact and they run with it's going to ruin your fertility and I, I just think it's so unfortunate because I can tell you as someone who has been on the other side of this what is really problematic is what I'm going through <laughs> to have <laughs> to have brain damage and to I mean, I don't know how else to describe. I've been using the word brain fog, and I don't think that it adequately um, covers it. I think the medical term for what I'm experiencing is reduced cognitive function. But because we're seeing that long term, it could turn into dementia. I'm just going to be hyperbolic myself and say it's caused brain damage in me around my cycle. And frankly, I would rather have one longer period after a vaccine than to have experienced what I've experienced long term with this. And so when I hear things like that and people are so hyperbolic, it it just it makes me so angry for those people who are like me and are vaccine hesitant and have that immediately <gasps> that fear reaction to oh you know what I'm just gonna I'm gonna pause I'm gonna wait I'm gonna I'm gonna see what happens for safety but the problem with the pausing and the waiting for safety unless you yourself are making an informed decision um for reasons that you and your medical professional decide is best for you. Uh, I'm not making a judgment on that, but what I'm saying is, is if the majority of people choose to wait and see, we're going to continue to get mutations so that those of us that were vaccinated, are it's no longer effective, right? We're going to be back to square one if we don't, the majority of us, the herd, don't go and get take it, get this taken care of. And those people who are, you know, don't have the means who, either for all the reasons that you gave, are not able to get multiple vaccines, for example, or they think that this, you know, puts them at higher risk and so they don't go get it. It's hurting the those people who cannot quarantine the most. It's We know that it's hurting, you know, black and brown populations the most. And it's, it's not okay to make um, these statements that are hyperbolic and not factual that are harming the most vulnerable populations more than anyone else and it just it it's obviously as you can tell by my stumbling words and increased tense voice it's <laughs> but you know it makes me so frustrated no, I mean, and I sad and I agree yeah okay um, I'm, I'm I'm uh I'm raising the roof over here um as you go um, you know, one of the things that I realized as I was prepping this show is that there's actually some really interesting follow-up studies and real-world data, as well as answers to some of these questions that, um, you know, when we talked about this a few months ago, we were, we were you know, we had to say, uh, we don't know yet, we need to study. Well, now the study's been done. And so we actually have a second um, vaccine show planned for next week where we're going to, I think, um, 
cover a lot of sort of this like new interesting data and hopefully really show um, the positive side of of you know we're we're seeing it in the data now of um, reduced transmission. There's there's lots of really exciting stuff to go through. So I hope this show was just like a I mean, I realize it was like a, a, a dump of, of science nerd um, information, but hopefully uh, when we wrap up, I, I believe next week will for sure, for sure be the end of, of these shows. Um, I hope we can end on this really positive note because there is one. Um, there's there's some really exciting um, data to, to look at. Um, these vaccines are actually more effective um, than we even thought. And um and once we reach herd immunity, which you know we absolutely will, if if enough people go out and get vaccinated, um, we're going to be in a really good place um, as a global community. So I think that's a really exciting thing, and we're definitely going to dive into that more next week. Thank you, Sarah, for always bringing the facts and the data and the science. And uh, if you listeners enjoyed the show, please. Stay tuned for next week where we're going to follow up some more, but also if you feel that someone you know would benefit from hearing this show or would be helpful, uh, your sharing of this podcast and your reviews are so deeply appreciated. We know that so many of you shared our previous uh, vaccine podcasts with your loved ones to help them. Um, be educated and empowered. And we hope that this show inspires you the same way. Thank you so much. And as always, we'll be back again next week. Thanks for listening. Do you love the Whole View podcast? We'd love for you to leave us a review wherever you listen and share a podcast with your friends and family. And did you know that you can now get exclusive behind the scenes content on Patreon for less than the price of an almond milk matcha a month? Your Patreon membership supports us and gets you access to a monthly bonus episode. But not for kids' ears, because our bonus content is explicit. You can find us as The Whole View on Patreon for our real, unfiltered thoughts on this week's episode. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.